Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books in Jewish Studies, a podcast channel of New Books Network. I'm your host, Schneer Zalman Newfield. Sarah Schneer is one of the unsung heroes of 20th century Orthodox Judaism. In Sarah Schneer and the Beis Yaakov Movement, a revolution in the name of tradition, published by the Littman Library of Jewish Civilization in 2019, Naomi Seidman describes how the Beis Yaakov schools Schneer founded in interwar Poland had an unparalleled impact on a traditional Jewish society threatened by assimilation and modernity, educating a generation of girls to take an active part in their community. The movement grew Uh, at an astonishing pace, expanding to include high schools, teacher seminaries, summer programs, vocational schools, and youth movements in Poland and beyond. It continues to flourish throughout the Jewish diaspora. Naomi Seidman is the Chancellor Jackman Professor in the Arts at the University of Toronto. She was previously the Koret Professor of Jewish Culture at the Graduate Theological Union in Berkeley and was awarded the Guggenheim Fellowship in 2016. Naomi, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. Wonderful. So please, let's uh, start off by um, having you tell us a little bit about your background and what led you to this work, to write this work. So... um... Zalman, I'm sure you know what it's like to be out in the world and you see some from people and you recognize them immediately, but they don't see you. They see you as just another person, right? Orthodox Jews. Orthodox Jews, to see Orthodox Jews out there. So I've had this experience very often. Um, I had, you know, in airports and other public spaces, I... um, I had this experience in a rather surprising place. I was in Krakow, Poland in 2010 with a group of students from the Graduate Theological Union. We were on a, a study trip of Poland and we were actually there for the Krakow Jewish Culture Festival, which is an amazing thing if you know about it. Um, and I was in the, um, I, but I happened to be alone for uh, an hour or two, and I was in the courtyard of the Ramoshul um, in this uh, a 16th century synagogue um, in the old uh, Kazimierz neighborhood of Krakow. And I see a group of Besyakov girls um, in the courtyard, and like four or five of them. And I myself, a former Besyakov girl, and so I can recognize a Beis Yaakov girl from a mile off. So I, I'm like, oh, this is so interesting. There are Beis Yaakov girls coming to the Jewish Culture Festival. That's that's so odd. Um, it piqued my curiosity. And normally I don't 
go to some stranger and try to say something. But at the culture festival, everybody talks to everybody. And even though they weren't, they didn't look, you know, eager to talk to strangers. Basiakov girls are never eager to talk to strangers. I actually <laughs> approached them and I said, um, hi, are you here for the festival? And they looked at me and said, um, no, we're actually here um, to visit the grave of uh, a woman who, the woman who founded our school. And I said, oh, Sarah Schneerer, she's buried in Krakow. And they <laughs> looked at me like, what? You know who Sarah Schneerer is? You know how to pronounce her name? I've been giving these talks and nobody can get that name right. And <laughs> <laughs> so they were surprised and I was surprised to see them there. And I walked back to my hotel after this. And I happened to bump into the founder of the Jewish Krakow, the cultural festival of Krakow, um, Janusz Makuch. And I said to him, you know, I just had this very interesting experience. I just bumped into a group of these Orthodox girls, teenage girls. They're traveling on their own, probably between Israel and New York, like I did after I finished my year of seminary. And, you know, they're here to visit. Do you know there's a grave of this woman who founded the the school system and they're here on some kind of pilgrimage. Do you know anything about it? And he said, I had no idea. Um, come to the festival next year and give a talk. <laughs> so I, I always wanted to be on the inside of the festival. You know, you want to be on the inside, not a, not, not a tourist, but a, an insider. So I was super excited to get the invitation. And I spent, uh, you know, the ensuing year trying to prepare a talk for the Culture Festival. Um, I give a talk at the festival. Unfortunately, no Beis Yaakov girls were there. But <laughs> Connie Weber, the editor-in-chief of Lippmann Library, though I think she's now retired, um, was in the audience. And she comes over to me afterwards. She has a card and she says, I want to publish this book. So you know how academic books are. Eight years later, there's my book. <laughs> oh, that's that's wonderful. That's really wonderful. Uh, so speaking of Sarah Schneer, who, who was she? And uh, you know, how does ha, ha, tell us a little bit about her background? Sarah Schneer. So if, when you talk about Sarah Schneer, you have to say there's two Sarah Schneers at least. There's the Sarah Schneer you grow up with in Beis Yaakov. And then there's the Sarashnira you discover when you start doing research. <laughs> so the Sarashnira you grow up with in Beis Yaakov is, you know, Sarah Imenu, our mother Sarah, which is also a reference to the biblical matriarch Sarah. So you hear this stuff about Sarashnira. Um, she was a simple, pious seamstress who wanted to save um, girls who were leaving the Orthodox world in droves right? This is your topic. A lot of OTD. It was a, there was a lot of off the derech. There were a lot of people leaving orthodoxy. And now it's not clear whether it's more men and more women. You probably know. You're the sociologist. But back then it was very clear that it was mostly girls, mostly girls and young women. And um, she tried to rescue orthodoxy by bringing girls back to orthodoxy, to the orthodoxy in which they had been raised. 
Um, and th that part is, is accurate. But what's not accurate about the way the, the, the kind of the Besiaco way in which this is told is that she wasn't, it's often said, unfortunately, Sarah Schneer never had children, but every Besiaco girl is her daughter. Um, and it's also, you hear the song that I learned about about Sarah Schneer starts in a little town in Poland. So first of all, Krakow's no little town. <laughs> Second of all, Sarah Schneer was no simple seamstress. Um, third of all, she wasn't a barren woman like the biblical Sarah um, until, you know, Isaac was born when she was, whatever, 90 years old. Um, but she was a, a divorcee. And she was somebody who um, was doing it partly to save girls and partly to save herself, partly to provide herself with a, a world in which you could be a passionate Jew, which a passionate observant Jew, which didn't exist before that. So that's one of the things I discovered about her. She also was very sophisticated. I mean, her, her diary was censored by the movement. Um, her past was kind of prettied up. She wasn't even sure she wanted to be Orthodox. Um, she knew she wanted to work with girls and young women. She'd rather work with teenagers than with children, all kinds of things I discovered once I started doing the research. So she's a very complicated, interesting person. She went to the theater a lot. She loved the theater. She went to various um, public lectures, despite not having a formal education. She was a real autodidact. Um, and went to lectures all the time. She went to a lecture on sexual hygiene, whatever that was, in 1908. Or, um, not entirely sure. I think it might have something to do with birth control. Um, so she was a, a kind of worldly and sophisticated and cosmopolitan um, woman who was incredibly lonely because she had a passion for religion that distinguished her from almost everyone around her including her own sisters. Um, she much more closely uh, resembled her brother. Um, and in some ways she wanted to be her brother. She, I, it's not, I wasn't clear and she wasn't clear whether she wanted to marry her brother or be her brother. One of those, one of those. But in any case, she had a real attraction to um, Hasidism, which wasn't an option for a girl. I mean, there was nothing you could do as a Hasidish girl. You could get married and be the wife of a Hasid. But that's not what she wanted. She wanted to be a chassid. Her nickname was actually a chassidke. Um, a little chassid. And, you know, sometimes, yeah, chassidke. She was a chassid who happened to have, I mean, she, who happened to be assigned female at birth, as we now say. Um, so uh, that's who Sarashnera was. And the mystery of Sarashnera is still, you know, yet to be fully unraveled. Um, but, you know, you have to publish a book, so you go with what you have. And what you give us is a, a lot. <laughs> you give us a lot to work with, a tremendous uh, accomplishment and, and uh, really uh, does paint a, a lot uh, or fill in a lot of the, the missing pieces in this story. So speaking of Sarah Schneer, um, how knowledgeable was she in Jewish learning and sort of classic Jewish learning? She seems to have... Um, gotten some huge pr uh, proportion of her Jewish learning through Yiddish translation. And she herself mentions these various uh, Yiddish works, which I hadn't been aware of 
um, that are pretty, I mean, there's a Yiddish translation and sort of reworking of the Zohar that she immersed herself in. So she, and and then when Beis Yaakov actually started, Beis Yaakov was committed to, you know, learning Torah in Hebrew. And she immersed herself in that material along with her students, I think. I think she was learning at the same time that they were because it moves from a certain kind of female library, female bookshelf, you can say, you know, the Tzenarena and, and that kind of thing, to really, you know, more now what we do in Beis Yaakov. We learn Chumash and Rashi and some of the other, uh, you know, the, the Pentateuch with, um, with, with uh, Rashi, the medieval commentator. She certainly knows Rashi. Um, the whole question of whether you can study the Bible in the original, the Bible, you know, in Hebrew, uh, what commentators, that was all being worked out during the early years of, of Beis Yaakov. And, and did Sarah Schneer use this um, uh, classical Jewish knowledge, uh, this, uh, this learning that she had acquired, did she use this publicly in her, in her um, public role promoting, founding and promoting the Beis Yaakov uh, school system? So absolutely. I mean, one of the things, she, first of all, she was, a, 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 aside from being a regular public speaker, she was also a um, a writer. She wrote uh, regular. Um, she wrote for the, the Beis Yaakov Journal, she, which was the journal of the movement, um, which came out twice a month, sometimes uh, once a month. She's in almost every issue, and very often she's writing about the the Torah portion of the week or the Jewish holiday. And she's very clearly immersed in the commentaries. The big question is, did she know to what extent did she get into legal discussion, which is a very tender little area for Jewish women. And, um, you know, Jewish legal issues, Jewish legal issues. It's it seems. So one of the things I tried to work out is whether girls are allowed to learn Torah is a very complicated um, legal problem that is, you know, was resolved in, in complicated ways by rabbis that gave permission for Beis Yaakov to teach Torah only what's called written Torah, not oral Torah, which means the Talmud, basically. And whether Rashi is considered also oral Torah um, was unsettled at the beginning of Beis Yaakov. But um, because Sarah Schneer was not only a teacher in Beis Yaakov and not only a writer in the Beis Yaakov Journal, but also the chief propagandist for the system, um, there's no doubt in my mind that orally, we don't have records of this, she was, there's, there's some hints of this, she was also getting required, couldn't help but get involved with legal discussions especially with fathers of daughters, when she went to the small towns to try to argue for Beis Yaakov. That was a big part of her job was to go around to small towns and tell parents why they needed to open a Beis Yaakov in their town. And what would immediately come up in any discussion was the father saying, not the mother, what does the mother know? The father saying, it says in the Talmud, you shouldn't teach, teaching a girl Torah is like teaching her frivolity or however you translate that verse. Um, so Sarah Schneer was a halachic 
arguer, a legal arguer on behalf of Girls Torah Study. Um, in, in her work as a propagandist for Beis Yaakov, um, what's interesting is she didn't publish legal argument. And as far as I can see, when she talked about the importance of Torah study for girls, she didn't get into the legal discussions. I call this her privilege to not get into the legal discussions because the legal discussions are so misogynistic that they, I mean, the things that they say that are, are, you know, the reasons why girls shouldn't study Torah are so unsuitable for the purposes. They may be necessary to argue with fathers, but if the girls heard about these Talmudic discussions, I think it probably would have turned them off. She had the privilege, since women aren't supposed to be study, arguing Jewish law anyway, she had the privilege of ignoring Jewish law. And she constructed an alternative argument, which is that girls should study Torah, not unfortunately, because unfortunately, otherwise they would go off the derech, whatever. Why should they study Torah? They should study Torah because they're Jews, period. That was her argument. She just pretended that Rabbi Eliezer, who said that thing about teaching girls Torah is like teaching them frivolity, she just pretended Rabbi Eliezer didn't exist. So Sarah Schneer didn't exist for Rabbi Eliezer, and Rabbi Eliezer didn't <laughs> exist for Sarah Schneer. It was a perfect bargain. Wow. Wow, that's really interesting. Uh, you mentioned before about the the um, the situation um, uh, for uh, Orthodox Jew- Jewish girls and young women at the time, and how many of them were leaving the faith. Um, what exactly was the situation? What kind of pressures or influences were young uh, girls and young women at the time grappling with? Um, this is a pre pre uh, World War One uh, after World War One around that time. So what happened is is that in the I think the 1860s we're talking about Galicia, so we're talking about a, a, a kind of eastern province of the Austro-Hungarian Empire. So the Austro-Hungarian Empire at its center is you know a modern place, and they're trying to kind of export modernity to the hinterlands. And these Jews are living in the hinterlands, mostly. That's where they're all located. And along comes this law from Vienna that says you have to educate your children. You have to give them some kind of secular education. Um, There weren't enough schools to fit all the people that were supposed to be sent to schools. And Orthodox uh, parents certainly didn't want their boys to be go to the, go to these schools because the law is that the boy has to study Torah from morning till night. Um, no time for secular education, no space for secular education. Um, and what did they do? They kind of got around the law in various ways. But the first thing they did is, well, let's send our daughters there. In the meantime, there's not enough space in the schools. We'll fill up those spaces with girls. Girls, not so terrible for them to learn a little Polish and German. They have to help out in the store. Um, let them go to school. So these girls started to go to school. Um, they started learning European languages. They started learning literature. Literature is what they all fell in love with. Um, this is the book I wrote before the Basiakov book, <laughs> How Jews Fell in Love with Love and with Literature. And it was especially Jewish girls who fell in love with novels. And that's what sort of, you know, persuaded them that they wanted to, to marry because out of love as opposed to 
through their parents um, setting them up with the shidduch, uh, a match, uh, an arranged marriage, and um, through these, through the combined influence of exposure to European culture, um, going to school with non-Jews, being out there on the streets, um, all these, and the new sort of social forces, the new culture of youth movements and socialism and communism and radicalism of various sorts, and the fact that in, in elite Jewish households, girls were expected to have some kind of exposure to foreign culture just so they can help earn a living so they support their husbands while they learn, though that was much less of a, nom- of a phenomenon than it is now, um, girls just became polonized, Europeanized. And through this process, they became less and less interested in being Orthodox and marrying a Hasidish man. Um, they actually didn't find these men attractive. They it, Part of the effect of the novel was to make Jewish men unappealing to their prospective <laughs> brides. And one of the things that Yaakov had to do was to persuade girls that Jewish boys were attractive. Wow. Um, uh, you you talk about an episode where uh, Sarah Schneer heard a sermon from Rabbi Flesch in Vienna. Uh, what what was that sermon about and what impact did that sermon have on Sarah Schneer's thinking about uh, female Jewish education? Oh, thank you for that question. So Sarah Schneer was living in a society that we would now call ultra-Orthodox um, that was stuck in its, it, 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 it recognized that it was up against a, a, a real catastrophe with this wave of people leaving orthodoxy, a wave of girls leaving orthodoxy, that despite the fact that they had been ignoring girls, ignoring girls' education, not even looking at girls, right, that unfortunately they actually needed girls. And all these, if only to propagate themselves and produce the next generation. And, um, you know, every society needs to reproduce itself. And they were actually in danger of not being able to reproduce themselves. Um, But they were stuck because they uh, were in this kind of cycle of which the Orthodox world is in right now. You can never be seen to be capitulating to modernity, to be making any kind of compromise. So any kind of, so anything you would do in favor of girls, the only the only thing that Jewish law could help them with was in making things stricter. It couldn't help them in reaching out to girls. Now, when Sershner ended up in Vienna in the winter of 1914, um, in a flood of refugees that left uh, what was essentially the um, the battleground, you know, um, in the First World War, the the main front, um, she landed in basically Central European Jewish culture. Now, Central Europe had a much more moderate form of orthodoxy. And even the quote-unquote ultra-orthodox among them could look at women, could talk to women, could acknowledge the existence of women in other than halachic ways. And as a matter of fact, had a long tradition of, of educating women, praising women. You could almost say this kind of Victorian chivalry, a way of talking to women. And she, sitting in the synagogue, 
1914 in Shabbos Hanukkah, the Sabbath of, of, of Hanukkah, and she hears something she had never heard before. She heard the sort of somewhat modern Orthodox rabbi, Rabbi Moshe David Flesh, giving a sermon directed to the women of the congregation. She barely remembered what he said. She had just never experienced anything like that. Um, in Eastern Europe, basically men acted like women didn't exist. Um, even their own wives, sometimes they you know, could, wouldn't be seen talking to or whatever. The, and she, she sort of vaguely remembered. I mean, I think she was in a state of shock to hear a rabbi address the women of his congregations. She didn't remember exactly. It was, a pray, it was in praise of women. And basically what she realized is that if this same trick was tried in Eastern Europe, if somebody praised Jewish women as opposed to continually um, criticizing them for being too interested in fashion, for being too superficial, for being immoral, and for becoming prostitutes, that's all Jewish women heard in Eastern Europe. Um, if somebody praised them and tried to draw them in, that might make a difference. And she was absolutely right. Problem is, no one would do it in Eastern Europe because there were all these Haredi men. So they outsourced it to her and they outsourced it to the German Jewish rabbi doctors who helped to run the movement. So basically, German Jewry and Sarah Schneer rescued Polish Orthodoxy um, with very little help from Polish Orthodox men. Wow. Uh, to step back for a second, what kind of Jewish education did exist, if any, for girls in Europe before the Beis Yaakov movement was founded? So, you know, in some ways, what, one of the things I discovered is that Sarah first little schools were not that different from what was already there. In other words, there were places either in the home or with tutors or even little, like a little cheder, a little private one-room school. It was a school where a, a girl could go and she would learn a little, how to read enough Hebrew to daven, um, to pray. To pray. And she would learn, um, you know, how to keep kosher. She'd learn a little bit. The difference between the traditional one-room schoolhouse that existed beforehand and the equally poor one-room schoolhouse that Sarah Schneer set up in her dressmaking studio was that Sarah Schneer was a religious maniac, a religious genius, a charismatic guru. Um, the difference was she, God was present to her in some immediate and intense way that she managed to convey to her students, not only in the schoolhouse, but in hiking, in um, that's what that's what's so interesting is that it actually wasn't so different than what was available beforehand. Yeah, you learned a little Hebrew, you learned how to daven, but then you were exposed to Sarishner's basically religious genius. I don't know how else to describe it. Religious passion, religious charisma. Um, the girls just describe a, a kind of Hasidic phenomenon, right? The girls describe how they would do anything. They gave up everything, living in middle-class homes to live in voluntary poverty with her in her two-room studio, sleeping two to a bed. That was a big part of it, I'm sure. Um, and then the, uh, you know, the, the, the singing, the Kiddush, the Shabbos, the Sabbath, the, 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 when, when Sarah Schneer 
bless the wine, which, first of all, women don't do that in the Hardy world, right? So Sarishner was already doing a little cross-gender stuff. But when she made the blessing over the wine, the girls reported it was like seeing the high priest at the temple. Um, that's what they compared it to. Um, she was wow. a kind of, uh, you know, if you look at the curriculum of Besiakov, you look at it and you go, oh, okay. Um, it was her. It was basically religious charisma, which is a kind of mystery. Right, right. And so Sarishner passed away in 1935. How many Besiakov schools were established by that time and how many students were attending them? So it's a one would think that would be an easy question to solve. That that question itself probably took me four or five years. And, and then I was finally like, I'm going to I can't tell you how hard I tried to find the answer to that question. And then I finally just was like, you know what? I'm going to publish the book without that answering that question. I finally figured out why that, I mean, with the help of someone named Jackie Rosenzweig, I figured out why that question is so hard to answer. And one question is, is that Besiakov, basically anyone who wanted could open a Besiakov anywhere. Um, and the way I figured this out is because every, you know, every sort of official communication from Besiakov is something like, People who are starting Besiakovs without being in touch with the central office and without certified teachers, you know, stop doing it. Um, <laughs> and so, which means people were doing it. And this was repeated over and over and over again. The central school office didn't know how many schools there were. To add it to that, there were schools that opened that were basically Besiakovs that had certified, certified Besiakov teachers, graduates of the, the central seminary. But they weren't called Besiakov because they were in they were in various regions of Transylvania, Czechoslovakia, sort of the Chasm Sofer, the ultra ultra orthodox, where Besiakov was not kosher, but where they needed Besiakov. So they were like, well, they needed Besiakov for the same reason everyone needed Besiakov, because some Rebbe's daughter, some rabbi's daughter, had gone off and become a communist. So you need a Besiakov. So they open a Besiakov, they just don't call it a Besiakov. So there's those Besiakos. And then there's the fact that Besiakov is being supported by the Joint Distribution Committee that wants numbers that don't exist. And the way you report to your funding organization is not always exactly totally accurate. So for that reason, we don't know. But to just give you some, the best um, conservative estimate is that there were um, at least 200 schools by that point. Um, in quite a few countries, and in 19, by 1935, it was already in Palestine, in Czechoslovakia, in Romania. There was a, there were three seminaries: one in Vienna, one in Krakow, one in Chernovitz, where my mother went. Um, there were uh, uh, Central Europe uh, a, a year or two later in North America. It was an international movement by the time Sarasnira died, with probably, I would guess around 440,000 uh, 40, students um, wow. throughout the system, maybe 45,000. Wow, that's really a, a tremendous accomplishment for one person to Incredible. <laughs> and basically the first 44 schools, she did it almost entirely on her own without any kind of institutional support. 
Wow. Did the institutional support eventually, um, you know, begin? Was there a time when the, um, you know, institutional Orthodox Judaism embraced the um, the Beisiakov movement? Yes. So the institutional support happened in a few different stages. The first thing that, so for two years, she was totally on her own. In 1919, the local chapter of the Agudas Yisrael, the World Organization of Orthodox Jewry, um, approached her. She was already kind of locally famous. She already at that point had seven schools, three in Krakow and four in surrounding towns, which was basically her students going out and founding a, a school. You know, one room after school program was basically what it was. Um, and then in 1923 was the first World Congress of um, or of the Agudas Yisrael, um, which was held in Vienna. And at that point, um, she had already been approached by various uh, Aguda activists, young Aguda activists, who were informally working with her. And at the 1923 World Cog- Congress, um, this organization, this all-male organizational body, um, uh, announced that it was going to support her project. It took them about two years to actually, it, it, in 1924, they actually paid an official visit to her seminary, her two-room seminary in her dressmaking studio, and they were shocked at what they saw. Um, this is, don't forget, this is uh, Eastern European Jews basically outsourcing their female problems, their gender trouble to German Jews. So this is German Jews visiting this um, poor little school that was um, in a tenement in the red light district in Krakow. Um, and they were Wait, uh, shocked Naomi? at what they saw. Um, and in 1925, in March of 1925, they actually had the first official conference. And the first resolution was to more or less take over the school and shut down all operations. And they didn't say so explicitly but they said so pretty clearly and get rid of Sarishnera. And they moved the office to Warsaw. They moved the students out of her apartment and to a different apartment. And then a few years later, there she is living in the apartment that they moved. They tried to get rid of her. I'm persuaded. Um, they didn't mention her for a year. Um, they, it was clear that they thought it was some kind of crazy cult. Um, and they tried to establish it under their auspices with their educated teachers, university trained from Germany. Um, and she wouldn't go away and the girls wouldn't let her go away. Um, and they kept moving and she kept following. Um, and uh, and then they finally, they opened up a, 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 their own building with a dormitory, which still exists in Krakow. And they had a, a, an apartment in it for the school headmistress and the school headmistress was not Sarah Schneer. And she moved again to be a block away. So that was Sarah Schneer. She wouldn't let go of that school. Wow. <laughs> um, uh, so you mentioned before that in some ways the the curriculum, uh, at least in the, the early stages of the Beisiaco movement, may not have been uh, that much different than what um, some Orthodox Jewish girls were receiving before Beisakov began. What did the curriculum develop into? And was it all um, sacred subjects, religious subjects, or are there also secular or um, vocational training uh, that was a part of this school system? 
So by the time Sarasnera died, it was it was a, a an unbelievably ramified network of schools. There were still the after school. Most of the schools were the same kind of one room after school programs where you learn a little this and that. There was some attempt to prof- professionalize those, but those never got that professional. Um, but there were also all day schools in the larger cities and towns. Um, some cities had more than one Besiaco for different neighborhoods. Um, there were uh, the teachers, and then there were the seminaries, which were highly professional. And in the in the high schools, in the all day schools, it, these were above ground. They were legal. A lot of the one room schools were not legal. That's another reason it was very hard to count them. They opened and closed a lot. They got shut down. Um, the uh, the all-day schools had secular subjects and religious subjects. The seminaries had pedagogy and psychology and literature and German and Polish. My mother learned Freud in the Chernovitz Seminary. She doesn't remember very much, um, but she does remember that she learned Freud. It was it was kind. Of, there was some radical pedagogy. I mean, this is the era of. Um, you know, Janusz Korczak, the, the, the radical pedagogue who believed that um, students should have their own, you know, in, in his school, the students had their own radio station, their own newspaper. Same thing in Besiakov. Besiakov had a, it's, the seminary had its own newsletter and it was run totally by the girls. The girls would stand up at every, there was a real democratic spirit. It was very influenced by socialism. And then the teachers were, my mother's study had in seminary, in the evening, sometimes there'd be a lecture by a local, you know, ultra-Orthodox rabbi, but most of the teachers were university-trained um, German young women, the University of Frankfurt, who had real um, professional, in some ways more radical than the kind of pedagogy that they have now. Um, my mother described to me that um, they did interpretive dances around the Book of Psalms, um, interprets the Bible in all kinds of creative ways. Um, she said that she wrote an essay from the perspective of a blade of grass. Um, so it was uh, let's it, it was a pioneering experimental school system. And beyond it being a school system, it was also a youth movement, two youth movements in fact. And the youth movement was run at least theoretically along very democratic principles with uh, you know, and there were clothing exchanges and, you know, a whole publishing house and songs and hiking clubs, etc. So oh, and you... the vocational school system. And then, you know, by the 30s, there were these vocational schools. Um, uh, Ohel Sara, they were often called. The name of Beis Yaakov is interesting. If you want to ask me about that. And Ohel Sara, the tent of Sarah. That was a, a, um, a vocational school and lodge that had over 300 students with where you could study nursing and bookkeeping and social work and early childhood education. And you would do Jewish studies and vocational studies. Bookkeeping, did I say that? So yeah, um, and Bertha Pappenheim, who was the famous um, German Jewish feminist, radical feminist, also an Orthodox Jew, um, was a consultant. She was on the Besiakov committee. She um, came to Krakow and consulted with Sarah Schneer in the last year of both of their lives. So we're talking wow. the most cutting edge professional education. I mean, you know, it was still ultra Orthodox and there was still 
Um, but those were the aspirations. It really is quite impressive. Um, you mentioned that there was a publication, the, the Beis Yaakov Journal. Um, what was it exactly, and why was it so influential? So it's interesting. Beis Yaakov, the Beis Yaakov Journal was, was the brainchild of someone named um, Eliezer Gershon Friedensen, who was a, a young Gerachasid, who was also the, 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 the leader, one of the founders of Poale Agodas Yisrael, the, the workers' branch of uh organized Orthodox Jewry, which had a socialist um, uh, inclination. So he was what you might call the left wing of, of ultra-Orthodoxy, a kind of socialist Hasidic guy. And when he was in his, you know, 21, I think, 20 or 21, um, he was a, a real activist in the Aguda, and he would go around from town to town and um, this is how he describes the founding of the Beis Yaakov Journal, and he would he would propagandize for the Aguda for for Orthodoxy against the Zionists and the Socialists, etc. And he said whatever argument they would throw at him, he was always able to answer until someone said to him, um, "You know what? Where are your women? Where are your young women? Should I tell you where they are? They're in our clubs. They're in our organizations." And Gershenson and Friedenson was um, struck silent, and he went around depressed for a couple of weeks, and then and talking to everyone about it. What are we going to do? Where where are our girls? Where are our women? And someone said to him, "You know, there's this crazy lady in Krakow who's who's doing something." And he went to Krakow and he presented himself to Sarshner, and he, you know, checked out what she had going. And he said to her, I want to be, I'm at your service. What can I do? What do you need? How can I help you? At this point, she's 10, 15 years older than him. And she says to him, I need a newspaper. Six weeks later, the first issue of the Beis Yaakov Journal, the longest running Yiddish newspaper devoted to women in interwar Poland. 1923 to 1939, um, running all those years um, what was it? It was it was a way for Beis Yaakov girls to connect with each other. It was literature and Sarah Schneer's writings and um, news about what was happening in Beis Yaakov. Um, it, it was a really quite exciting um, publication. Um, it was also just exposing Orthodox girls to the world, to the larger world. There were articles about everything. There was articles about Gandhi and Tolstoy and etc. Wow. Um, so um, how did Beis Yaakov relate, the Beis Yaakov movement, relate to other Orthodox phenomena at the time, such as neo-Orthodoxy in Germany and Hasidism in, in, in Eastern Europe? So, so Beis Yaakov was, you know, because it was a new thing within a society that acts like there is nothing new, um, it had to right the, the the you know the ideology is there can be no nothing new everything has to be traditional, so it it drew from all these traditions and when it drew from tradition, you know it also drew from from modern tendencies but it it it, it covered that up a little bit more, so it drew from Hasidism what did it do it created Hasidism for women, it created pilgrimages 
Now, if the Hasidic, if the if the Rebbe's weren't interested in hosting groups of, you know, fourteen-year-old girls, which they weren't, then go visit the grave of a dead Rebbe who can't complain. Um, so it basically transgendered Hasidism for women, and it found the Hasidic Rebbe who was a woman. It more or less said so. It never said so absolutely explicitly, but it said so implicitly in a hundred different ways. So that's how it borrowed from Hasidism. It borrowed from um, uh, German Jewry, professionalism, um, you know, the, a, a professional school with a report card. There weren't report cards in yeshivas. Um, you know, a bell to start the class and to end the class, physical education. Physical education was unknown in, in the yeshiva world. Um, so it adopted all these things from German Jewry. So it, it took and borrowed and mixed, but really it was unique. Um, there was nothing like it. And somebody recently said to me, it's the only thing that united Orthodoxy. The one thing that, that united, there were girls from every part of the Orthodox world, including from families that weren't Orthodox at all. So there were Hasidic girls, Hasidic girls, and Lithuanian girls. Um, there were girls from modern Orthodox. Beis Yaakov transcended the divisions of Orthodoxy and united it. And it still does. It's still... Even in its present fragmented state, it still is the one orthodox phenomenon that has the widest reach. So in some sense, it's, it, it, it speaks about orthodoxy as a whole because it emerges from this moment of orthodox collaboration and orthodox unity. And it's no accident that the, the thing that you constantly sing till you're so your throat is sore in Beis Yaakov at every assembly and at every conference convention is achtus, unity. In achtus we shall live, whatever, we shall thrive. I forget, how can I forget those words, right? <laughs> achtus, achtus, achtus. Because right. it's still, even now, it unites people in the way that the rest of Orthodoxy has not managed. All right. And um, speaking of, of uh, incorporating different elements uh, that existed at, at the time, how did Beis Yaakov relate to other revolutionary uh, movements at the time, such as socialism and Zionism? So, you know, officially Beis Yaakov was anti-socialist or certainly anti-communist. Officially it was anti-Zionist. But on the ground, it was part of that feel. It was part. It was basically a socialist school, because the girls were attracted to socialism, and they were attracted to communism, um, and they didn't see any huge distinction between their the religious passions that were being awakened in them, and the passions for social justice that they saw all around them. They saw it as one and the same thing. Um, many of them. So, so they, you know, the, the, the ideological landscape of interwar Poland was very, very fluid um, and plenty, you know, and, and very dreamy and very idealistic. So, so, so you really have to make a distinction between, you know, what the, what the, you know, the rabbis who are running the movement are insisting on and what's going on at the on the ground. Um, you know, there's that, that, that communist Basiakov teacher that, you know, I talk about, you know, I don't think it was such a big mystery that there was a communist Basiakov teacher, you know, was she really just a communist who was pretending to be a Basiakov teacher? Who knows? I mean, there were all kinds of 
all kinds of very fluid identities right now. I'm sorry, right now I meant as, as just now. You know, all kinds of hybrid, in some ways, hybrid genders. I also think there was a kind of gender hybridity going on. And um, how did Beis Yaakov adopt the language of the family to refer to itself, to the people in its uh, institution? So this is one of the ways where it played a very tricky game with tradition. So officially, the ideology of Beis Yaakov was to restore the Jewish family to its traditional character and strength, um, because the Jewish family was was in such shambles, um, because girls were no longer just automatically following what their parents were telling them, that the parents had very little control over, especially their daughters. Um, the idea was, you know, to bring the hearts of daughters back to the mothers, etc. That's one of the things um, they said. So, but as a matter of fact, this was not possible within the realm of the actual family. Um, things were too far gone. So what they did was to, in some ways, remove girls from the family, certainly in the dorms, but even in the smaller schools. You spend all your your whole weekend, you know, your whole Sabbath and all the holidays, you spend them with not your annoying, traditional, boring old parents, but with, you know, some 19-year-old teacher or, you know, with all the girls of your own age in a club or hiking. Um, but because they had this rhetoric of the traditional family, they reproduced it within a, a kind of non-family framework. So just like the Black Panthers or, or feminists, right, sisterhood is powerful. The Siakov girls are sisters. Not so much anymore. Still, there's a little bit of that language. But in the interwar, uh, interwar Poland, it was my Benos sister, my youth movement sister. And all of this whole family was held together because Sarah Schneer was the mother. The mother, Sarah Schneer, that is our mother and that makes us all sisters. And every Beisiaco girl is her daughter. So basically, this is a, a nice all-female family that... Um, rescues the Jewish family enough so that it can be imagined that one of these girls will actually want to marry a, a, a boy and start a more traditional heterosexual family. I see. Um, how did Beis Yaakov transform itself after the Holocaust? Boy, that is a big question. And, and I think you, you, you read my book. I could see, thank you so much for it, for that. But, um, I have a very short epilogue about what happened afterwards because that's such a big subject and it's also such a transnational subject. And it's so, uh, but the short answer is, and I'm, I'm still answering that question. I'm still working on this. Now, my present research project is Contemporary Basyakov and I have this website that maybe I can just tell people about. Um, go to www.thebasiakoproject.com and you'll see what I'm doing now. And the first thing I'm doing is just mapping the Basiako school system. What is it like in Buenos Aires? What is it like in Antwerp? What is it like in Israel? I, I really don't know too much about it. But the main thing is that the Basiako schools after the Holocaust became much more um, conservative. Um, and really became much more inward looking. Beis Yaakov, before the Holocaust and the interwar period was in some ways a, a 
the Kira movement, the missionary movement to attract girls, missionary movement to attract Orthodox girls back to Orthodoxy, but also to attract non-Orthodox girls. There were uh, people who were attracted that came from non-Orthodox uh, schools or families. Beis Yaakov today, there's very little of that. You're much more likely to be kicked out of Beis Yaakov for some minor infraction that, you know, someone in your family has a smartphone than that you're brought into the fold. Um, there are very few people brought into the fold. They're, they're very, they're strictly guarding the boundaries. They're trying to maintain the orthodoxy of these girls through controlling access. But there's still, you know, there's still a little bit of that wildness and freedom of the interwar period. And to me, the, the it's no accident that I got interested in the school by looking at one of the one of the freedoms of the school system is this international travel, which is done through, you know, if you're a Besyakov girl, you have the opportunity to travel around the world through these Besyakov networks. When I was 17, I traveled from, I did the same thing. I, I mean, I didn't go to Poland because people didn't go to Poland back then, but I went, I always joked that I went to, Borough Park in Zurich and Borough Park in Paris and Borough Park in, in London. I mean, I went to Orthodox neighborhoods, but they were in different countries. <laughs> so that's something. <laughs> it's like Lubavitch, right? You get to go to a Chabad house here and a Chabad house there. And it's not like you're you're being exposed to... There's some freedoms that the Beis Yaakov movement still gives girls. And I think that the idea that you can just control people, that you can't give them any freedom at all, that you can't give them any pleasure and joy and, and opportunity. Besiakov still is a place that manages to discover areas of, of freedom and pleasure and joy that, that resemble in some sense the kind of wild experimentation of the early years, right. especially well, in its kind of margins. Right. Uh, before we let you go, I always ask um, our guests uh, what project they're working on now. Uh, and you mentioned uh, something, but if you want to talk a little more about it or about another project that you're working on now, we'd love to hear about it. Thank you so much. I'm working on very different projects. It's so weird. Um, I'm working on, so on one hand, I'm com continuing the Basiaco project and I'm focusing on the contemporary world and I'm looking at the performance culture of Basiaco. Um, the one of the biggest things about Beis Yaakov that continues from Sarishner to our own day is this Beis Yaakov is theater crazy, or as they call it, productions, singing and dancing and costumes and, and, and props and sets and, you know, staying up till one in the morning to paint the, I did this and, you know, and, and, and this I think is this, is the, is the secret ingredient in the Beis Yaakov sauce. So I'm going to track this down. I'm going to figure out what it's about. And I should just point out that there's still a lot of cross-dressing in that part of Beis Yaakov. Um, you know, in a place where there is no man, try to be a man, um, is a Beis Yaakov joke. Because in a place where there is no man is Beis Yaakov. There's no men. So you have to be the man. So Schneer said that about she has to be the man. So in the production, you get to put on a beard, payas. You take the side locks from the the wool that cover that, that where the etrog where the citron comes in, and you put it. So I'm I'm very interested in performance culture because I think that's one of the sort of 
I'm interested in the wilder parts of Beis Yaakov. I'll just cop to it. Um, at the same time, I'm writing a book about Freud and Jewish languages. So the only <laughs> intersection between those two um, uh, projects, other than that the fifth Lubavitcher Rebbe was psychoanalyzed, um, as we know, is is that Bertha Pappenheim, who was Sarschner's um, colleague, was also con- is also considered the first uh, uh, patient zero in the discovery of psychoanalysis. So um, she was a neurotic, hysteric, um, you know, in the in the late eighteen eighties with Breuer and then. You know, Freud wrote up the case study, and then she shows up in my Basiaco book. So that woman got around. Wow. Wow. All so <laughs> fascinating. Naomi, thanks so much for taking the time to share your thoughts with us today. Thank you so much. It was so much fun. I really appreciate this. Uh, that concludes our program. Thanks for listening, and have a great day.